to the study that we're in. But to get started today, I want to go ahead and ask you to turn with me in the Bible to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, if it would help for any reason, there are some red Bibles in those seats in front of you. You can grab one of those and turn to the page number on the screen. It is a really easy passage to find because it's literally the very first words of the Bible is what we're going to be looking at. But as you're turning there and, and getting to that passage, just a, a quick reminder. Uh, one of the principles that we always have to keep in mind when we're studying the text of the Bible is that the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us, right? The Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. We believe that absolutely everything in the Bible is inspired by God as an intent and is intended to help all people in all places at all times to know him and respond to him. But not a single word of the Bible was originally written to us. We're not the original audience for any of it. So for us, as we're trying to think, okay, what does God want to say to us today through the text? The first step we have to do is think, okay, what was he trying to say to the original audience back then? We've got to do the work to understand that message, because that informs how that message applies to our life today. So, kind of begs the question, if we're not the original audience, who is the original audience of the book of Genesis? Well, the book of Genesis was written to the people of Israel uh, shortly after God had rescued them from Egypt, where they spent 400 years in slavery. And again, remember, at this time, there was no written Bible. So they, they, didn't, they couldn't just say, well, who's this God who rescued us? Well, let's read in the book of Leviticus all about him, because there was no book of Leviticus. So instead, they had been in Egypt for 400 years. So for 400 years, the people of Israel had been shaped by the worldview of Egypt, by the stories of Egypt, by the values of Egypt, by the Egyptian understanding of how the world was created and what humanity's part in it was and who the gods were. And then this, this new God rescues them, and they find themselves out in the desert, and you know, this God's rescued them. And they've got some questions, like, who is this God who rescued us? And, and what about those other gods in Egypt? Are they real? Are they not real? What do we do with that? What does this God say, you know, our role in the world is? So Genesis 1 is part of a, a larger section of scripture that was written where God is introducing himself to the people of Israel. And, and he's trying to answer some of those questions about who they are and what their purpose is. And purpose is what we're going to be talking about today. I mentioned this briefly last week, but we're really going to focus on it today. One of the lessons that you pull from the book of Genesis is this idea that God very clearly shows that humanity has been created, created on purpose, and we have been created for a purpose. But God created us on purpose, and we have been created for a purpose. And this is a very, very different understanding than what the people of Israel would have learned in those 400 years in Egypt. Because there are other creation stories that are floating around in Egypt and the ancient Near East at that time. And they took a very different view to sort of how humanity was created. Uh, in some of those stories, humanity was created, well, in one of the stories, humanity is created because the gods get tired of doing work. They don't want to do manual labor anymore. So they invent humans to kind of be their slaves. In another one of those stories, humanity is actually created on accident. These two gods uh, basically start fighting, and one of them gets cut, and his blood flows out, and when his blood hits the dirt of the ground, humanity like sort of springs up out of that almost by accident. Uh, in another one, the gods, uh, gods are hungry, uh, so they introduced humanity. They created humanity to basically be like lunchables for the gods. So if you think about those competing stories, the ones that would have shaped the way the people of Israel viewed the world— Humanity doesn't have a lot of purpose or dignity in those. I mean, at best, they're an accident. And at worst, they're a meal for the gods. So, so keep those understandings of the creation of humanity in mind. Because then we want to compare that to what God is saying in the first chapter of the book of Genesis. Because part of the reason that he wrote this book down, he, he, created, he talks about creation this way, is he is trying to correct the misunderstandings that the people of Israel have picked up in Egypt. So we're going to read a couple of verses together, starting in verse 26, and we see this. 
says, then God said, so he's talking about the creation of humanity, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. Okay, so I mentioned what I want to try to argue today is that Genesis 1 shows that humans were created on purpose and are created for a purpose. So we'll look at those in turn. So first, where, where do we get this idea that humanity was created on purpose, that it just wasn't some kind of accident? Well, you see that idea baked into the very structure of the first chapter of Genesis itself. So when you read Genesis chapter 1, you realize it is a very highly structured piece of writing. So there's six days of creation, and they follow a pattern. Like, they work together. So the first three days, God forms these different spheres, light and dark, the sea and sky. And then on day three, there's this sort of extended, the the description of day three is a little bit longer. And it talks about how he creates dry land and vegetation. Then days four through six match up with those. And in them, God fills the things he forms. So he creates the sun, the moon, the stars. He creates the fish and the birds. And then you get to day six, and you have this longer passage again, where there's this sort of double creation. He creates the land animals. And then in the single longest section of the entire chapter, the end of day six, at the culmination of it all, it's like the pinnacle of creation, he talks about the creation of humanity. Right? Everything has been building up to that. It's been laying the groundwork for that. And you see that this is kind of the final piece in God's original design for creation in the language itself. So you get to the very end of the chapter and you read this. So he's just created humanity. It says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Okay, God saw all that he had made and it was what? Very good. Not not, not good. Very good. And you know why I say it's not good? Because good shows up a lot in this chapter. In fact, there's a pattern. Basically, after each of the first five days, it says, you know, well, God said, let this happen. And then it says, you know, the creation happened. And then each day ends with this phrase. It says, God saw that it was good. So you read that over and over again. God saw that it was good. He 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 saw that it was good. So you get to the end of day six, and what do you expect to read? And God saw that it was good. But the pattern changes. And when the, the authors change the patterns to get our attention, he says, no, 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 it's only after humanity has been created, when this, this last piece of creation, the culmination has been put in place, that it says God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. It's only when humanity is that last piece of the puzzle that it's all been building to, that God says, now I'm done. Now I'm done, and it's all very good. So humanity was created on purpose. This wasn't an accident. God didn't cut himself shaving and the blood hit the dirt and, you know, humanity just popped up, right? This was a, there was a design for this. They were created on purpose. But humanity was also created for a purpose. Again, let's go back to those same verses that we read and just listen to some of the language in there in verse 26. It says, let us make mankind in our image so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, right? God created them in his image and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So what's unique about this is you look at the whole of creation, all six days, the only thing that is described as being created in God's image is humanity. I don't know, what comes to mind for you when you think about it? I don't think about it. It's like, what does it mean that we're made in God's image? You know, I'm like, well, does that mean that God has fingers and toes? I have no idea. But again, for me at least, I think that's, that's what I think of when I hear the word image. But we have to remember that, that Genesis wasn't written to me. It was written for me. 
So we have to stop and think, okay, well, how would the original audience have thought about this language of being created in his image? What, what would they have understood? And this idea of being created in something's image, like that had a very specific meaning in the ancient Near East. So here's how they would have understood it. So imagine if you can, oftentimes when they talked about an image or being created in an image, they were referring to statues like this one. So the scenario here is imagine that you're the king or the emperor and you've got this, this vast piece of land under your control. There's no planes back then, right? There's no helicopter. There's no way to get from one side of the empire to the other quickly. So if you're like Alexander the Great, for example, you've got this empire that stretches all over the world. There are lots of parts of the empire that you're never physically going to make it to. So how do you communicate to those faraway parts of the empire that you are in charge? Well, you make an image of yourself, and you ship it out there, and you have it set up in the town square or in a temple. Right? That image is a way of making sure the people out there know that you are still in charge, that you're the one calling the shots. And it's something that reminds the local officials, that the leaders, that it's your will, your commands, your values that are supposed to be lived out in that place. It's a way to exercise rule there without being there physically. So that's how the original audience would have understood this language of image. And, and God takes that idea they would have understood, but look what he does with it here. In this instance, it says that God is the one who's doing it. It's not some earthly king that's trying to sort of project his rule. It's the one true God who's doing this. And he doesn't do it by making a lifeless statue. Instead, every single person is made in the image of God. And in that sense, they reflect something about his character. And, and they're given the, the charge, the commission to act on his behalf. And that's what Genesis 1 is trying to communicate. Human beings were created to work with God, to work under his leadership, to partner with him, to rule and subdue the earth so that his image is reflected. We're supposed to be caring for the world and for each other so that his love and his justice and his will, that those things, his wisdom, they show up in ever-increasing ways. And for me, as I'm trying to think, okay, what's, like, what's a parallel to that today? A way that has helped me start to think about it is to think about it like a melody of a song. So think about a, a composer. Like if you had to take music appreciation in school, right? You learn about composers like Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach. So let's say that Bach has this great idea for a song that he wants to write. What he's going to do is he's going to take that idea and he's going to put it on paper as sheet music, right? And then it, an orchestra can take that sheet music and play it. But their job is to take the music the composer has written on that sheet of paper and, and bring it to life by playing it together. They take the intention of the composer, which is what the sheet music represents, and they make it real through their actions, the way they, they put it into practice together. And I really believe that these verses in Genesis, they're, they're God's sheet music for the song that we're supposed to play. They, they show God's intention for how we're supposed to be working in the world, and it's a beautiful song. Right? Really, it's a picture of people living in harmony with God and with each other, People who are invited to, to stretch their creative powers to the limit as they work to see God's rule and his love and his justice and his mercy go out through the world. And I love the way that a scholar named Sandy Richter described it. So she's trying to describe, okay, what does it look like for humans to really give life to the music that God wrote? She says, okay, imagine humans relying on God's power and presence and leadership to truly create a civilization without greed, malice, or envy. You can have progress without pollution, expansion without extinction, a world in which humanity would be provided the guidance they needed to explore and develop their world in such a way that the success of the strong didn't mean the deprivation of the weak. Here, government would be wise and just and kind, resources plentiful, war unnecessary, achievement unlimited, and beauty and balance everywhere. Right? 
that's what we were created to be a part of. That's the sheet music. That's the job description that God gave us, and it's still what he invites us to be a part of. However, you all may have noticed over the span of your life that as a group, as humans, like, we are really terrible at this. Like, we just really don't live out our job description very well. In fact, if you read in the Bible, the original human, they make it about two and a half chapters into the book before they basically tear up the sheet music God gave them and say, we got a better song that we're going to play. Right? They sin against God. They say, you know, we know what's right and wrong better than you do. And they rip up that music and start playing a song, and it turns out that that song is God-awful. It's like, like nails on a chalkboard, right? Like the song, when we start doing things in our own way, all those right relationships we were created for with God, with each other, the world around us, all the stuff, just, it just all comes apart. And we see the consequences, the impact of that in our world today still. So I- instead of being people who honor the image of God in us by spreading his love and his faithfulness and his justice and his wisdom to the world around us, we ignore the image of God in us. And all too often our decisions are motivated by greed or fear or self-interest. We pursue our own values and our own priorities, and we ignore the ones that God commissions us to pursue. So that's the state of the world uh, in Genesis 3. Um, But God loves the world too much to let it stay that way. So he puts a rescue mission in place, and not surprisingly, that rescue mission involves somebody who once again is bearing God's image with all the sort of freight that comes with that that we've talked about. Uh, Listen to how Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, describes Jesus and what he did when he came. So there he writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, it says, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus bore God's image in a way that goes way beyond anything that we can do. Paul says that the fullness of God dwelled in him. So it's as if in Jesus, God the composer stepped down into our world to show us exactly how the music should be played. His life, Jesus' life, is God's way of like stepping into the orchestra practice room and saying, wait, 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 hold on, guys, listen. Let me play for you. This is what I had in mind. I want you to hear how beautiful the song can be. And look what Paul says that that Jesus, God's perfect image, did when he was here. Paul, earlier in this chapter, he describes the, the brokenness, the effects of sin, the alienation that we have from God and from each other. And he says this. He says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. Right? Because of what Jesus has done, we can be made right with God again. Uh, we can actually start playing the original song that we were created to live. And when we look at Jesus and his life and the things that he did and the teachings, right? It's like when he says, hey, love your enemies. Th- those, are, those are notes that you write down in the sheet music. Oh, this is what it's supposed to sound like when we play it. We're supposed to be the kind of people who love our enemies. Like, because God reconciles us to him and to each other, the alienation that we feel, separation from God and others we feel, it doesn't have to stay. And we can be invited once again to actually play the music God created us to live. Um, but here's the thing. So Jesus came and showed us what this is supposed to look like. But just because Jesus came, and then just because he sent the Holy Spirit to the church to empower it, it doesn't mean the church has always lived this out perfectly, right? I mean, if you look at the last 2,000 years of church history, there are a lot of times that the church has clearly gotten it wrong. In fact, many people today, they, they look at the history of the church and what followers of Jesus have done, and they argue that the church has done more harm than good. Now, I personally don't think that's true, but I, I understand where they're coming from. I mean, they look at the Crusades. Uh, they look at the pogroms in Eastern Europe where Christians would kill and murder Jewish people. They look at the history of sexual abuse in the church, 
Or they look at the ways that Christians often engage with people who disagree with them in such mean-spirited ways, and they're like, look, they just see example after example of Christians behaving in harmful ways that, that don't honor the image of God in them or in others. And they just think, I don't want anything to do with this. In fact, there's a guy named Brennan Manning who summed this up once in a really powerful way. He said this. He says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk at the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. So what do we do with this conundrum, right? I mean, for those of us who made a decision to follow Jesus, do we just give up? We say, the sheet, it's too hard to play this music. I can't do it. Or if you're here, or if you're watching online, if you're exploring the claims of Christ for yourself, do you just say, you know what? Look at how awful Christians have tried to play this music over the years. They've messed it up so much. Clearly, there is nothing of value in there for me. Um, well, recently, I heard a man named John Dixon, who's a professor at Wheaton, talking about this. And he, and he did it in a way that I thought was really compelling. So I, I wanted to share his illustration with you today. In fact, his illustration is where I got this idea that, that the job description, the gospel, what we're called to do is like a beautiful piece of sheet music. So in his illustration, uh, the gospel, uh, what Jesus calls us to live, the way that Jesus lived, how we're commissioned to go and be in the world, that is the most beautiful piece of music that has ever been written. Now, the problem that people have with Christianity is not with the music itself. The problem that they have is that Christians don't always perform the music very well. So if you stop and think about it this way, think about it in terms of like actual music. So a lot of music scholars look at Bach, one of the greatest composers, and they look at some of the music he created, specifically his, his cello. He does this, this suite of solo cello music. They say it's some of the most beautiful music that's ever been written, especially the prelude, the opening piece to that. Now, if you were to hear me play the intro to Bach's cello prelude, you would not think he is a very good composer. That is because I do not play the cello. I've never played the cello in my life. But you would be able to say, okay, I can make a distinction between the beautiful music and the terrible performance. And I think this is the idea that Dixon is getting at, right? With Christians, Christians haven't always played the song very well, but it doesn't mean the song isn't beautiful. It just means we haven't always performed it well. And to try to make this memorable for you, um, I'm now going to uh, attempt to play the opening of Bach's cello prelude on the cello. As I mentioned, I do not play the cello. I actually borrowed this this week from my nephew up in Salem. I got about a three-minute lesson on the cello, and uh, I've been watching some YouTube videos, so we're going to see how this goes. Uh, in fact, you guys sitting over right here, you should be grateful, because it was just on Thursday that I figured out how to tune it. Um, but actually, I, I haven't figured out how to tune that anyway. So, bear with me. So, this... <laughs> This is the opening uh, to box. Okay, so here we go. Something like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure my nephew wants to chill back after what I just did to it. So, so here's the thing. That, that, what I want you to do now is just take a moment and listen. 
listen, so this, we're going to listen to a performance of this piece by Yo-Yo Ma, who's one of the greatest cellists in the world. So what does it sound like when someone who's given her life to study this plays it? So if you've been hurt by the church, or you have been hurt by someone who's a Christian, or if you look at what Christians have done over the years and decide there is just nothing in this for you, uh, it's because Christians haven't played the music well. It's not because the music isn't beautiful. And if you've been hurt by the church, then on behalf of all of us who very imperfectly try to play this music, I want to apologize for the way that we have given the most beautiful song the world has ever known, a song that has changed our lives and performed it in such a way that it has actually pushed you away from full and the free life that God has for you. My deepest, deepest hope is that you can really hear the beauty in this song and respond to that, not to how it's played. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, this is why we spend so much time at Suburban talking about spiritual disciplines, about how we want every single person to develop a rhythm of spiritual practices and relationships that helps them stay connected to God's grace and power. Those are ways to stay connected to the mind and the heart of the composer so we can learn how to play the music better. That's what discipleship is all about. It's about growing in our ability to truly understand what the music should sound like and then learning how to partner with God's spirit in producing the song. And if you do something, if you, if you listen to Bach's prelude all the way through, um, right about now, actually, in just a moment, he starts to do something interesting. So the, the song is written in the key of G. So G is that, that, like, that's the note that when you hear it, you, you hear this sense of resolution. You feel like, okay, I'm, I'm home. This is where it's supposed to be. But as you get a little farther into the song, he moves away from G. And, and he starts doing this other stuff musically. And when you listen to that, it, you, you get this tension, right? Because you want to go back. You want to go back to where you're supposed to be. You want to go back to home. And he builds this tension in there. And I think that tension is built into every single human heart. But there is a part in all of us that longs to be home. That longs to have this resolution from God. And, and my hope and my prayer for us today is that as we end, we will respond to this tension not by turning to ourselves and to our own strengths as if we can resolve this on our own, but by turning to God for the help only he can provide. And that's why as we close out our time together today, we're going to take communion at the end of the sermon instead of earlier in the service where we normally do. So if the folks who are going to help serve that can go ahead and get ready. Because think about what happens in communion. In communion, we believe that, that we come together to the table and in the bread and the cup, in a way that we do not fully understand, uh, we access the very real power and presence of the risen Christ, right? That's how we get to know the heart of the composer. That, that's how we get to know and receive what we need to learn how to play the music better. So hopefully we can be reminded today that, that of the life that God really wants for us, right? Our job as a church is to play the music as clearly as possible, both in our individual lives and our lives together. But we cannot do that on our own. We can only do that as we rely on God's strength and power. So my prayer for those of us who made a decision to follow Jesus is that we would figure out what it looks like to stay connected to that power with every single breath so that over the course of our lives, we can dedicate the whole of our lives to learning how to play this music well. And my hope and prayer for you, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus yet, is that your eyes would be open, your ears would be open to hear the life that God has for you and to respond to that. So as we prepare to take communion, would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Um, 
thank you for the opportunity that we have to come to the table today and to meet you. Uh, all week, Lord, as I've been bumbling with cello, um, I've just been reminded about how your work, the, the beauty of the gospel, Lord, it absolutely has changed my life. And yet so often, I don't communicate about it very well to others with my words or my actions. So God, as we come to communion today, would you help us remember that this, this bread and this cup, this is food for the journey to which you have called us. Would you nourish us and give us what we need to know you better so that we can follow you more faithfully with every step. So God, in just a moment, as we take the bread and the cup,